You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning, and I hope you've been enjoying our recent series talking about idols in our life. I know it's not always kind of a popular feeling or thought to talk about, but the reality is we all have idols, right? We have things in our life that we take and we put in a wrong place, meaning that we move it above the value of who God is. We move it above the value of where it's supposed to be. And really anything can become an idol um, if we take it from the wrong place or put it in a wrong place from its rightful place. And so today I kind of want to hit one that's probably pretty obvious, I would say, and that is this, the idol of success and wealth. You know, in America... This might be one of our greatest struggles, success and wealth. I don't know about you, but for me, one of the biggest struggles I have in life, and has anybody here ever done like things like the Enneagram and personality tests? Anybody ever done any of those? Um, when I read about those things, when they start to talk about me, like if I do the test and it starts to say, oh, this is who you are, they're always very accurate in describing what I'm like. Well, one of the things that describes what I'm like is this, that I'm motivated by a fear of failure. And I, when I first read that years ago, I was like, wow, that is absolutely true. I, I struggle. Most of my motivation comes not really from, honestly, just being successful. It's really just the fear of failing. I don't want to be a failure in life. And in every way, it comes through in every way in my life, whether it's parenting or a husband or being a leader. And there's a, an upside to being afraid of failure. You tend to be pretty good at some things. But there's also a downside where you're always trying to control everything. You're always trying to succeed in every way. And when you come into the kingdom of God, you start to realize that the more effort we put in as humans, the more you know, just our natural self takes over, honestly, the less successful we are in the kingdom of God. And so in the world and in the secular world, we're always reaching for success and wealth. I put these two together because they kind of go hand in hand. Most of our mindset for the history of humanity is that success happens to equal wealth. And so if you have wealth, whatever that looks like in your context, in America today, it's the dollar, but in, you know, the, the stories we're going to read today, it was gold, it was silver. I mean, you could still be successful if you have gold and silver. Um, but there's this reality of looking at wealth in a certain way, and we tend to equal that as success. But when we look at the kingdom of God, we, re we realize that success doesn't have anything to do with wealth in God's eyes. And so we can take success, even in our world, in our life, because here's the reality. You do need some wealth in your life to survive. <laughs> you need to pay your bills and you need to be able to purchase food and, you know, heat your house and put gas in your car. And there's things that honestly require us being somewhat successful in life in just the normal terms, meaning that there's money in our bank accounts and that we're doing well in those kinds of ways. There is requirements of that so that we can just live. But there's also a place where then that becomes the aim of our life rather than God. And that's the struggle. That's when things move from being maybe this good, rightful thing to this place of idols, to this place of changing where it's supposed to be 
and elevating it to a place it's not supposed to be. I think that there's possibly no greater story in the Bible to describe this than King Solomon. We all know Solomon for one reason. Even if you go out in the world today and you talk about Solomon, even if they have no idea who Jesus is or what the Bible is, most people are going to be able to equate who King Solomon is for one reason. Anybody know? Wisdom if you're a Christian. Wealth if you're not. Even today, they would say that King Solomon's wealth, when they tried to add it up, just the secular world, would say that he was probably still worth more than any of the people that are the wealthiest people today. I think it's Jeff Bezos right now or maybe Elon Musk. They're always fighting for the top. Billions. I don't even know what they're worth right now. You should Google it. Google it for me right now, somebody. Just one person because then all of you will look like you're staring at your phones. But it's hundreds of billions, right, that they're worth. And they would still say that the wealth of King Solomon translated to today for inflation would be worth more. He's known for his wealth. Right now, Christians, we love to focus not on the King Solomon wealth side of it because, honestly, when you get into really what King Solomon did with his life, it's not so pretty. But we like to start at the beginning, the wisdom, King Solomon's wisdom. And so I want to actually start there in 1 Kings 4.29. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. There's a lot. Honestly, there's, uh, I don't think there's any more description about a king in the Old Testament than that of King Solomon. Even David, his father. There's more story and history around King Solomon's life than there is even David's. And so you see a lot of scriptures. Well, in 1 Kings 4, we begin to see now Solomon is taking over Israel, right? His father has passed it on to him. And there's a whole lot of history to King Solomon being king, actually. Um, if you don't know some of the background here, Solomon is the child of Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the woman that King David saw out of his balcony and then took her for his wife when she was already married and had her husband killed. Anybody know this story? This is King David, the one who God describes as a man after his own heart. Murderer, taking women that really probably not volitionally on their own going, has a child with this woman, and Solomon is actually Bathsheba's child, and it's not his first child. Now, historically, your first son would be who takes over as king. And if you look throughout the history of it, there was a whole to-do going on within the kingdom of David and when Solomon was taking over because his brother was trying to take over too and was trying to rally people behind him. Well, Solomon wins. He becomes king. But there's a long story to that. So honestly, he starts as king under some pretty precarious circumstances. But there is a reality to the fact that God did bless Solomon. And we see this because Solomon starts out in this long prayer to God, basically saying, listen, I want to honor you. I want to do good by you. I want to live like my father did. And so we get to 1 Kings 4, verse 29, and it says this, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding, knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. In fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the east and the wise men of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan, the Ezraite, the sons of all these basically famous people in that time. But it says his fame is spread throughout all the surrounding nations. And he composed some 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 1, songs. 
He could speak with authority about all kinds of plants, from the great cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows from the cracks in a wall. So he was wise. He was smart. And God gives him this wisdom, and it says that he blesses him. And we kind of see this story begin to take place with Solomon where he begins to honor God, right? So he goes out and he starts to collect gold and silver and he starts to build this new temple of the Lord because David had the, the you know, not had built the temple, right? He had made the plans, but Solomon was going to be the one who completed it. So Solomon begins to complete this temple to honor God and he does that. And I'm not going to read through all the scriptures because there's just too many of them, but we get to this place when Solomon completes the temple and actually we'll, we'll turn to Second Chronicles 7. It's just the next book, next book, two books over, actually. Second Chronicles 7, which is honestly just some recounting of what we read in First and Second Kings. But Second Chronicles 7, there's this whole thing where Solomon is dedicating the temple of the Lord. And I was reading that this week, and if you read through it there yourself, what you'll see is even by this point in Solomon's life, He's giving himself a decent amount of credit. He starts to say, the temple that I have built for the Lord. Now, you know, um, Bruce made note that sometimes you can stop in here and see me swinging a hammer. That's true. Or cleaning or mowing. Usually I start to do those things when I get tired of talking to people. <laughs> I need to do something with my hands. It really helps me honestly think. And so I like to do things with my hands. But what I can tell you is this. Likely, Solomon never swung a hammer. Yet he's saying he built the temple. What Solomon did was command people to build the temple. But he takes all this credit and he talks about the temple he built God and all the things that he's done to accomplish this. And, and it's this moment. We, we know some of these scriptures. This is the, the portion of scripture where in 2 Chronicles 7 where God begins to respond to Solomon, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. We know this. Now, I find this interesting that he's saying this to Solomon in this time. Because I honestly have always taken this scripture as a warning to Solomon. And a warning to the people of Israel. Really a warning to us. A, a caution sign in our lives on how we act. And it says this in verse 4, Then if my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and restore them. And my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. I skipped a verse I wanted to start with, actually. Verse 11, it says, So Solomon finished had planned to do in the house of the Lord, and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Right, He successfully accomplished everything he intended. And then God is responding with these scriptures I just read. But verse 17, let's go on. It says, as for you, if you faithfully follow me, and he's, now he's talking directly to Solomon. This is God. First he had this kind of message for the people of Israel. If you act a certain way, if you pray, if you humble yourselves, you repent, things are going to go well. Now he's speaking to Solomon. He says, as for you. If you faithfully follow me, as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty. For I made this covenant with your father David when I said one of your descendants will always rule over Israel. But if you, but if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the decrees and commands I've given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, what we're talking about, right? 
idols. This is one of the commandments, one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not have any other God before me. This is what idol worship means. It means to take something and to place it above God. And here we see God, he's beginning to warn and caution Solomon, just like he has many of the leaders before him, just like he does the people of Israel. And he says it again, if you serve and worship other gods, then, you know, when I read through the whole Bible, and I've done it quite a few times now, I, I did this one practice one year that I was doing it, I, and I wrote these lines and boxes, and this is one of them. And what I notice is this, there's a lot of if-thens in Scripture. There's a lot of ifs and thens with God. I, I know we love to quote and read promises that are in the Scriptures, but almost all of the promises of God come with an if first. There's almost always an if you do this, if you turn this way, if you act in this way, if you obey, if you lower, you know, bow your heart to me, if you do these things, then I will do these things. There's always an if and then in the scriptures with a lot of things from God. And this is one of them. He says, if your descendants abandon me, then, verse 20, I will uproot the people from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. I will make it an object of mockery and ridicule among the nations. I want to stop here for one second. Just a side note. As much as Solomon did this great thing to honor God by building a building, God doesn't really care about the building. In fact, he's willing to make it a mockery to the nations. Why? Because all he cares about is the motivation of why they built that building. He cares about the motivation of why they wanted to honor him, not in how they actually did the honoring. They care about the fact of what's happening. He cares about what the fact of what's happening in Solomon's heart and in the people of Israel's heart. God is always looking at us in this way. It's so easy for us to want to build lives that look a certain way to honor God, but really God doesn't care about how they look on the outside. That's why success in this world isn't what honors God. Success in the way that we think, even success in ministry. I'm convinced that God is proud of my fruitfulness when I say yes to him and when I do things, but if I aim for success even in ministry and in the church, then I can create an idol out of that very thing. And what God would say is, if you want to create an idol out of the thing you did to honor me, I'll make it a mockery. And I'm sorry to say this, have we not seen it? Not in this story, but let's talk about some televangelists of the 80s and 90s. And that's just me being nice because they're old and will never see me saying anything. How about people today? How many mockeries have been made of the Christian church in this world because people end up elevating themselves or their success elevates them to this place in the Christian world and then they stumble and they fall because honestly there's still possibly deep character issues or like Solomon they get awry from realizing that everything they have is a blessing from God anyway and they start to think they did it on their own. And so success not, is not just a problem in the world, it's a problem in the Christian world as well. And the same warning that I think God gives 
Psalm in this moment is the same warning he can give Christians. Like, listen, thank you so much for this beautiful thing you've built me. But if you go awry in your motivations of why you built it, it will become a mockery. This is the idol of success. When we take something out of place that it was even meant to honor God, it can then become something that dishonors God and, and becomes a mockery of his very name, which we see happen later with Solomon and the temple. God lives up to his word. He allows nations to come in and destroy the temple and carry off the descendants. He says, I will uproot the people from this land. I will make it an object of mockery and ridicule. And though this temple is impressive now, all who pass by will be appalled. They will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? And the answer will be, because his people abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt, and they worshipped other gods instead and bowed down to them. That is why he has brought these disasters to them. I mean, this is a, a tough set of scriptures. I don't know about you. I, I just want to preach about Jesus who loves everybody who's hung on the cross so that everyone can come back into his family. Absolutely true, absolutely right, but there's still a place. And I think it's especially true when we start to talk about an idol of success in the ministry world or in the Christian world, that when we start to dishonor God by something that kind of shouts that this is what God looks like, but we're doing a poor representation of it, God hates that the most. He does not like to be misrepresented in the world. That's why we see Jesus, honestly, the only times he's angry is not at the people who are prostitutes and tax collectors and people living in what we would look at as darkness. He gets angry at people who are religious, representing God in the world, but they're doing a terrible job of it. And one of the biggest ways that we can fall short of this is this idol of success. We can raise up our lives to be all about success and wealth. And that can happen in the Christian world. That can happen in our jobs. That can happen everywhere we are. In fact, I would say that one of the main reasons the United States is the place and destination of so many immigrants is because people are still hoping and believing for the American dream of wealth and happiness and the white picket fence and that dream. And again, nothing wrong with the dream. Something wrong when it gets out of whack in the order of priority in our life. There's something wrong when the value of our homes and our cars and our possessions and our bank accounts and our 401ks becomes more important to us than that of God. You know, we talked, uh, Bruce talked briefly and we prayed for our offering and every week, you know, we do this offering thing and, and when I've taught on tithing and the principle of giving, Again, we would say this, God doesn't need our money, but there's something about us practicing, painfully giving, and I say painfully on purpose, painfully giving a portion of our money so that we can constantly be reminded our trust is not in that thing, but in God. Because our world is shouting to us all the time that our trust is in who we are and what we make and how wealthy we are and the resources that we have. Our trust is bound in our 401ks and the retirement that we're building for ourselves. That's where our trust lies. And so there's this practice of giving that we believe from scriptures where it says, okay, I'm going to give this percentage simply to remind myself that God is more important than even this money I've made. It's a practice, a literal practice. And I think it should be a regular practice. You want to know why? 
because it's a real easy one to forget. It's a really easy one for us to get caught up in our wealth and success and our money above other things than almost anything else in this world. I mean, almost everybody in this room has probably gone to their bank, looked at their bank account, or checked their retirement funds all within this week, at least once. I stopped looking at my retirement account. It was too painful. Jason once in a while will be like, hey, have you looked at your retirement account? Don't look at it. And I'm like, don't say that. Now I want to. See all the money I've lost. <laughs> but the truth is my trust isn't in it. My trust isn't in that thing. My trust has to be in God. If I start to place my trust in it, it's, a, it's an immediate alert for me in my life in a red flag that says, oh, I've begun to elevate this thing to an unrightful place in my life. Is it important to plan? Is it important to have money set aside? Absolutely. Don't take me wrong with those things. But the reality is an idol of success and wealth can easily grab hold of our hearts, just like it did for Solomon. 1 Kings 11.4, let's read near the end of Solomon's life what takes place. If I can find it myself. First Kings eleven four. Says the Lord had, I'm going to start in two. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them. So he's talking about, actually we'll back up to verse one just so you understand. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. This is one of the big downfalls of King Solomon. It says, besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. A thousand women. I have no words for the stupidity here. But you see what happens with Solomon, right? There's this funny contrast of wisdom and foolishness with him. He gets so wise that he actually becomes dumb. He leans on his own understanding so much that he actually makes horrible, horrible errors. It says, in Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord, his God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. I mean, Molech was literally the god where they'd sacrifice children to. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and he refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Something goes awry with Solomon. He gets this wisdom from God. He gets this blessing from God. You even see where God promises to bless him in this wealthy way, but, but then it gets out of control. It gets out of hand, and Solomon somewhere in the meantime begins to believe this lie that the success really was based on him, but it was not. It was based on God. And this idol of success and wealth becomes probably the most important thing to Solomon. And it's why, even why he married all these women, right? It said 700 were of royal birth. He married into all these families so that they owed him tribute. It was all about wealth. And he builds this wealth and he gets to this place where he has everything, right? I mean, 
The world is coming to him all the time to listen to him. The world's coming and giving him tribute all the time. There's stories in the scriptures where it says they would sail across the sea and come back with 30 tons of gold. I can't even fathom how a ship holds that, but 30 tons of gold. His wealth increases, his, his fame increases, his wisdom is known around the world. But then we get to a book in the Bible. I didn't put this in your notes, but I want to end his story on this before I read some words from Jesus. We get to a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. And the very first scripture of Ecclesiastes, and this is a book written by Solomon at the end of his life, and this is what he says. Everything is meaningless. Completely meaningless. Some scriptures, they translate, it says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. You see, somehow, even after he had pursued his whole life for wealth and power and success in this world, he comes to this conclusion, and honestly, this is probably one of the greatest moments of his wisdom, if you ask me. Not the ones that led to his wealth, but the one that actually began to realize that his wealth was meaningless. Because it really is, right? I mean, the truth is, we, we build things our whole lives in, we build up this success and we live for 80-some years in our life. The, the, you know, the average age right now is 76 for men, 78 for women in the United States. We live 80 years-ish on this earth. And then everything we built, probably in another 80s, is completely forgotten. And there's this place where wealth and success don't actually bring what God calls it to bring to our life or what God calls in our lives, which is joy and fulfillment. It can only come from living in the kingdom of God the way Jesus tells us to live. Yet we can make idols of success and wealth in our life and like, like Solomon come to this place where I think many of us would be able to say, man, that was meaningless. I don't know about you, but I've had those moments. Have you? Have you ever reached a place where you're like, why did I do that? Why did I waste all that time? Why did I put that much money into that thing or that circumstance? And Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless. What's sad is he writes the entire book of Ecclesiastes and he comes down to the end and he kind of repeats himself in chapter 12, verse 8. He says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. And he goes on to say a few more things. Verse 13, he ends by saying, that's the whole story. (laughs) Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. You know that spot where it says every secret thing, a few other places is translated for every motivation. That even he'll look through the actions of our lives and separate them from our motivations, and that's what he sees. Because God is always looking at the motivations of our heart. He's not looking just at the externals of our lives. And there's a good and a bad to that. Sometimes we're trying to put on a good face and we we just wish God would see the good external. But then sometimes we're doing terrible things with our lives and we have a good heart and we should be happy God's looking past those and seeing our heart. But the motivation of who we are in our heart is what God is looking at. And any time we raise an idol up above him, it's hard for him to get past that. 
right? We read in the first time I, I preached about idols that he's a jealous God. He does not like to share our heart with other things. The idol of success and wealth, Matthew 6, 19. I want to end with these thoughts in the next few minutes where Jesus says this, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Actually, I want to turn there because I want to read the whole part. Jesus is speaking some pretty important words here. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Listen to this scripture. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I've preached on this scripture a number of times, mentioned it many times. One of the biggest things that stands out to me is the fact that when Jesus decides to list what his opposite is, because he's talking about two masters, and, and he gets a chance here in this moment to say, what is the opposite of serving Jesus? And he says, it's money. If you love, you can't love both God and money. Why does God pick money? Why does Jesus pick money? Because I think it's one of the things that pulls at our heart more than anything else. And money is a representation of something, our trust. Because really this word, it just means resource. It means wealth. It means riches. It means money, you know, in our terms. But this idea of resource. And there's this place where God is saying, and Jesus is saying, you can't put your trust in both God and your own resources. It can only be in one. And then he actually says what I think happens to a lot of us. It says, for you will despise one and you'll love the other. And then it says this, you will be devoted to one. And sometimes I look out at people's lives and what I see is instead of a devotion to God is a devotion to other things, one of the biggest ones being success and wealth. I mean, we see it in the story of the rich young ruler. Comes to Jesus, kneels before him, asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, these are, you know, and then says, oh, do you, have you followed these commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man, this young, rich, young ruler, he says, actually, I have done that, and I've done it well. And Jesus actually says, you have. So now, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And what happens in the story, it says, the young man went away sad, for he was very wealthy. He wasn't willing to give up that thing. And I'm not saying God asks every one of us to sell everything we have, follow him, and give it to the poor. But I am telling you, he's asking every one of us to make wealth something way lower in the importance of our lives than him. 
And that when it gets above that, that we actually will then get drawn into this devotion to wealth and success, which becomes an idol in our life. And I think it's possibly one of the biggest struggles in the United States. Other places, wealth and success aren't as big a deal because they're just trying to survive. But in the U.S., this is our status. It's our reputation. It's, it's how we view our success. It's how we even view oftentimes our own value, which is the problem. Our value can only come from God. Our value can only come from Jesus. Our trust can only be put in God. It can't be put in other things. Verse 33, I want to jump down and end there today. This is Jesus. He's going on. Actually, I want to... I want to give you one quick practical advice on how not to have an idol of wealth and success. And I think Jesus kind of gives us this in this moment, right? So he's telling us all these things. And we get down to verse 25 and he says this, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. How many people in here worry a lot? He's literally saying, listen, if you want to avoid serving two masters, if you want to avoid the biggest struggle of why the idol of success and wealth become the most important thing in our lives, then don't worry. Stop worrying all the time. I love how practical this is. He says, whether you have enough food or drink or even enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable? valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Man, if only that was as simple as he says. One of my biggest struggles is when something difficult happens, I have to solve it. I have to fix it, and I have to fix it right away. If I know there's a problem, if someone, you know, maybe has a problem with me or gets hurt by something I've done or I've wrong someone in some way, I have to go and deal with it. I, I hate time going by. And one of the reasons I hate any time going by is this, because I will not sleep a wink. I stay up all night, rolling over in my mind every plausible scenario of a conversation or a situation, what I could have done different, what I could have done wrong. And usually I get halfway through the night and around 3 o'clock in the morning, and this is my real life sometimes. I realize I'm an idiot. I can't, I'm doing nothing right now. I can't change anything. First off, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't even go and deal with the situation. It's 3 o'clock. And I remember this scripture, can all the worries add a single day to my life? Of course they can't. And then honestly, what I have to do is pray. I have to pray. I literally have to rebuke my own mind so that the Holy Spirit can come in and take control of my own thoughts, because if not, I spin into this cycle of worry. And even that then becomes this idol where I'm going to control everything. We heard Jessica speak about that weeks ago, and, and these idols that start to come in my life because we're trying to control things ourselves. And, and in this one, it's like, oh, I want to make sure I'm successful, and I'm afraid of failure, and all of these things. Well, God does not want us to live that way. We aren't supposed to be people who worry all the time. He says, don't worry about these things saying, what will, we, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else 
and live righteously, and he'll give you everything you need. Why don't we stand this morning? Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. This is one of those if-then moments. If we don't want to be under the control of idols of success and wealth, if we don't want worry to control our life, then there's a place where we have to release those things to God. And, and it says how to do it. Seek the kingdom of God, live righteously, and God will give you everything you need. I, I wish it was just the end of the scripture. God will give you everything you need. But he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. There's this, there's this kind of if-then moment where we have to seek him. And today I wanted to end just within the last four or five minutes with a chance and a response for us to seek him. And sometimes this idea of seeking God can feel really intangible, right? It's like, you know, he's, he's not this tangible person I can stand in front of. I can't grab hold of him. I, I don't even know where I'm supposed to find him. But here's the best thing. God's everywhere. He's sitting next to you, he's with you, he's in you, he's in your car, he's in your home. Seeking him simply means this. This is my best way to explain it. When you choose to take the mindset that you currently have and turn it towards Jesus. When you set your mind on things above rather than the things below. We see this in scripture all the time. This idea where we actually make a choice mentally to say... I'm no longer going to be thinking this way. God, I want to seek you and think your way. And in that moment, it's like he honors that. Even though it was like you almost did nothing. You just had a different thought than you did before. And God begins to draw you in. So it happens for me at 3 o'clock in the morning. I say, okay, Jesus, I'm accomplishing nothing. I usually repent for doing it to begin with. I say, I'm so sorry. I've just wasted five hours of my night my rest that I need to actually be a good human and a good person and a good leader. God, I'm sorry that I've tried to take control. God, I want my mind to go after you. I want to seek you in this moment. That's what it means to seek him. You can seek him in worship. You can seek him in prayer. You can see, seek him by reading the scriptures. And so I want to give you a moment to seek him. Believing that God wants to give you everything you need so that we don't have the idols of success and wealth in our life. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. I think the worship team is going to play a song. And I'm going to open the front. We've been doing this recently a lot more. I've said this a lot of times. The front isn't more holy than your seat. But there is something about the symbolism of seeking him and moving from where you are to somewhere else. And so even in your seat, you might be nervous. Like, man, I don't want to walk up in front of everybody. Well, listen. Most people in here aren't going to judge you. In fact, most people in here are wishing they were courageous enough to walk forward. I get it that it's awkward. But listen, usually God asks us to step out in some awkward faith way for him to move in our lives. So I would just encourage you, if you feel God pressing something in your heart this morning to seek him in a new way, come forward as we pray. Come forward as we worship. Let me pray for you. God, we thank you this morning that you're with us in this place. God, that when we seek you, we'll find you. God, we thank you that you're not hiding from us and that you're not distant from us. 
God, we thank you that honestly in any moment we can turn to you from whatever way we've been going, from whatever way we've been thinking, and you don't reject us. That you're there with open arms. And so God, even collectively today, we repent of any way that we've idolized wealth and success in our life, any way that we've raised these things up and made them more important to you. And so today, we want to live by this scripture in verse 33 that we would seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and then you would give us everything we need. So God, I ask your blessing over every person as we reach out to seek you in this moment. In Jesus' name, come forward, worship from your seats. Let's seek him for a few minutes. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.